Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2 of Matthew. Our focus this morning will be on the visit of the Magi, but let's go back and start our reading, not in Matthew 2, but in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, verse 18, it is Christmas after all, and there's some Christmas material there to be read, so I don't want you to feel a short change this morning at all, to miss out on getting the whole of the Christmas story, Matthew has part of it, Luke has the rest, and we bring those two together in a harmony of the Christmas story. So let's start reading in Matthew chapter 1, and I'll read through Matthew 2, verse 12. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And after assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. If we were to continue reading, we'd see that the story actually takes a very dark and sinister turn. Because after God pulled the wise men out of there and sent them back another way, he also extracted the holy family, tucked them away in Egypt for a while to escape 
Herod's cruelty because Herod, he intended to murder the baby Jesus. When the wise men didn't come through, when they thwarted his plan, he, he just went ahead and slaughtered all the babies in and around Bethlehem just to make sure that no rival would come up, grow up to take his throne. We sometimes forget that the story of Christmas is set against such a cruel backdrop and part of such a brutal world. But that is reality, isn't it? And those who have been around and those who have seen what happens in different parts of the world, we know that it is a brutal and cruel world filled with sin and filled with evil. And when we're careful to remember the dreadful context of the Christmas story, that's when we realize exactly how bright this light is that is shining on this night, that God shined into the darkness to grant salvation to this sinful world. We need to remember that. We need to remember that the light shines brightest against a very dark backdrop. But there's another reason to remember what happened back then, and we need to be mindful of the choice that stands before each and every one of us as we sit here today. We're shocked by King Herod's brutality, and rightly so. We're appalled at such a strong, insatiable lust for power, horrified by the slaughter of innocent children in this effort to kill Jesus, and none of us would do anything like that, obviously. But here at the beginning of his gospel, Matthew wants us to see very clearly what the stakes are for every single one of us. There are only two sides when it comes to Jesus Christ. Only two sides to stand on. You're either for him or you are against him. We are, each one of us, either all in as zealous, thoughtful, devoted worshipers of Jesus Christ, like these wise men, or we're on the side of sinners, those who are in league with the likes of the Herods of the world. And that's what Matthew wants us to see very, very clearly as he starts his gospel. We'll try to tie all that together by the end, but let's start by tracking the journey of the wise men from their country to Jerusalem, because we need to see how these men are compelled by just this chance to worship this child, this child who embodies the gift of God's salvation. And so we want to see in these wise men, I'm going to give you just three points this morning. Here's the first, the anticipation of Christmas worship. The anticipation of Christmas worship. We see the anticipation of, this, of worship in these wise men. It says in verse one, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So Matthew has just in that verse set the context for us. He gives us the place, which is Bethlehem of Judea, which is just five miles from Jerusalem, by the way, five miles. Take a couple hours to get there on foot. And he sets the time here in the days of Herod the king. Herod the king, who's that? This is Herod the Great, known to history as the Her Herod the Great. And suffice it to say, he was not a good man. The Great does refer to his competence as a ruler. He was shrewd, capable as a politician. He was a skillful administrator, a skillful ruler. He was an ambitious builder. He was known for his great building projects all over Judea and even further beyond up into Syria as well. He even turned the temple in Jerusalem, 
which had fallen into disrepair, had been destroyed by the Romans sometime earlier, and he turned this into one of the wonders of the world. So he was no slack ruler. He was ambitious, strong, could be ruthless. There are no great qualities, though, in King Herod to cover over and eclipse his notorious reputation as a ruthless and brutal tyrant. No one today commends Hitler for his great attributes. You know, he was ambitious and he was such a great orator. Nobody says that about him because we see that all his great qualities were serving one evil purpose. In the same way, no one will forget Herod's penchant for murder. Herod the Great sought and then received from the Romans. They were the overlords of Judea at the time. And he sought and received from them the title King of the Jews. Even though Herod didn't have a drop of Jewish blood flowing through his veins, he was an Idumean, which means he was an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. So he had no right at all whatsoever to rule over the Jews. It was actually total sacrilege that he would be the ruler of the Jewish people. But Herod got the throne by his cunning. And once he got this title, King of the Jews, he intended to keep it. He held on to his title and his position by his ruthlessness and over time, patiently, systematically, surreptitiously, Herod eliminated all his political rivals, even potential political rivals, even rumored political rivals, he killed them all. No one was safe in Jerusalem and in Judea. There was no friend, no associate, no matter how faithfully he'd served Herod in the past, it was safe. Tomorrow was always a new day, always a new opportunity for treachery against him. Even family members, even close relatives of his, his own sons didn't make the cut. He killed them. Even his own wife killed her too. If he became suspicious of designs against him, if they were associated with those who had designs against him, if Herod even suspected that you might be associated with someone with designs against him, they all died. So it's with good reason that Augustus, Caesar Augustus, who was counted Herod as a friend, equipped it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. So this is the time. It's a dark time in the days of Herod the Great. He's probably 69 years old at this time. He's going to die just a little bit after this incident here. But it's at the end of his reign of terror when his mind isn't quite all there. He's suspicious of anything that moves. He's maniacal in his lust for power. And it says, at this time, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, look at verse two. They said, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, small wonder, right? He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Let me tell you, when these visitors came from the east, they were noticed in Jerusalem. They didn't escape anybody's notice. Matthew tells us very little about them here, but contrary to the Christmas song we sing, they were not three kings of Orient are. These are not kings, these are wise men. Matthew calls them actually in the text here, he calls it in the Greek text, he calls them magi. It's William Hendrickson who does some myth busting in his commentary that corrects what he calls the vast Yuletide, uh, vast collection of Yuletide lore. And there are some myths about these three kings, these wise men. For example, the names Melchior, Balthazar, and Caspar, one from India, one from Egypt, and one from Greece. That's all myth. That's not reality. 
Tradition says that the wise men were baptized by Thomas. Their bones were discovered by St. Helena, deposited in the church of St. Sophia at Constantinople, and later transferred to Milan, and then finally brought to the great cathedral of Cologne. All of that is Roman Catholic fiction perpetrated upon the ignorant and the gullible in order to get their money. Again, they're not kings, they're magi. There are probably more than three of them. Probably more than three. We don't know how many, but they were from the region of Mesopotamia near Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq. The Greek word magoi is actually a Persian loan word. The loan word from Persia is magus, the plural magi, magi. So these magi, these magi, they belong to a high priestly caste of ancient origin. They were religious scholars from ancient Persia and in the area in the region of Babylon. They were teachers of science and religion, protectors of the law and the culture of the Medes and the Persians. It's John Broadus who tells us that as to science, they cultivated astronomy, especially in the form of astrology, So astronomy being the actual study of the stars and astrology being all the cultic worship surrounding the study of the stars. So they cultivated astronomy and especially in the form of astrology with medicine and every form of divination and incantation. It's Merrill Unger who tells us that the Magi formed five classes. There were the Hartumim, the expounders of sacred writings and interpreters of signs. See them referred to in Daniel chapter one, two, and five. There's the Ashafim, the conjurers. There's also the Mecca Shafim, the exorcists, the soothsayers, magicians, diviners, the Gozerim who were casters of nativities and astrologists. And then also the Kazdim, the Chaldeans in a narrower sense. All these five classes were intended to interpret texts and interpret myths and lore and perpetuate and carry on the culture and the law. These are the same ones that were summoned in Daniel chapter two, along with Daniel, to interpret the dreams of the great King Nebuchadnezzar. They are the magicians and the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the word is Chaldeans there, and they're summoned to tell the king his dreams. We go back to Daniel and read in that great prophecy, Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they're brought to Babylon during the Jewish exile in 605 BC. And these young men and many young men like them from Jerusalem, they became students of the Magi. They were forced into that through their slavery, but they were elevated because they were found to be young men with great potential for learning. So they became students of the Magi, learned their sciences, studied their ancient wisdom. And eventually we see in Daniel's prophecy that God raised up Daniel and his friends. He gave them positions of authority over the ruling class of the Chaldeans in Babylon. And it was through them, through Daniel and his friends, that God sovereignly and very graciously gave to these Chaldeans the revealed wisdom of his law, of his truth. Through the Jewish law and the prophets, and taught them not just myths, not just speculation, but taught them certainty about Israel's hope. Other designs, sovereign designs, great designs of God were at work in the exile. Not simply the punishment of the Jews for their sins, though that was happening, but also the intent to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. By his grace, by God's grace, the Chaldeans were exposed here to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A God that could only be known by the revelation of him because no human mind could come up with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
the one who is the great I am, Yahweh. And so the great Babylonian king, even he, Nebuchadnezzar, gave praise to Daniel's God as God humbled Nebuchadnezzar to wander around like a beast for seven years until he humbled himself before God. And when he did, he said, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar said that. So these magi, they're learning from Daniel and his friends and they're learning about this great messianic hope, the coming of a savior who's been prophesied since Genesis chapter three, right after the fall in the Proto-Euangelion, an ancient text, Genesis 3.15, that God's salvation would come in the offspring of the woman to crush the devil and free everyone from sin. Ancient gospel, ancient truth revealed and taught to these magi. It was after the Babylonian kingdom fell to the Medes that Cyrus, the Persian, king of Persia, he decreed the return of the Jews to rebuild their temple in 538 BC. But we understand that many of the Jews stayed in Babylon and many lived in Persia. We read the book of Esther and see this testimony to the Jews living there and among them in all parts of the empire, by the way. So the promises of the gospel in the Jewish scriptures became known to very many around the world and most notably to the Persians and most notably studied by these magi. So by the time these magi had arrived in Jerusalem, they had been studying the Jewish scriptures and anticipating the Jewish Messiah for centuries, five centuries at least, but definitely more. Traveling from the land of Chaldea near ancient Babylon, Mesopotamia, the place between the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, they'd come a long, long, long way on this journey. Traveled by caravan, probably around 900 miles. Probably took them about four months to get there. That is a long time of waiting, isn't it? Long time of anticipating, a long way to come, but these magi, they are eager, this eager to worship the king. Contrast that with people today many of whom will not get out of bed on a Sunday, not even cross the street to hear the life-saving good news of the gospel. Some won't even take a few hours on a Sunday to receive the truth and sing and worship and pray about this king, not these magi, not them. So when Matthew writes, behold, pay attention, look, notice, this is what we're to see. These magi arriving in Jerusalem, riding on animals, probably camels, maybe maybe Arabian or Persian horses. They've got trains of baggage and stuff that they bring with them. They've got a retinue of servants. After all, they not only need to get to Jerusalem, but they got to make their way home as well. Their question in verse two, maybe it was asked in the Persian language, but it was probably asked in Greek, which was the lingua franca of the world, but it was with a Persian accent. They're standing out. They are noticed in Jerusalem. Obviously they're new in town. They're not from here. And so when they come to the streets saying, where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. People took notice. They were not beyond escape of attention. Lots of ink has been spilled, trust me, in interpreting what the Magi meant when they said, we saw his star when it rose. The word star 
is the word aster in Greek. It's the root word of astronomy. It can refer to an actual literal star. It can also refer more generally to any bright luminary that shines with great brilliance. It's a star that they saw and got to ask, how do they know to look for a star? I mean, what did they expect? Why did they expect a sign of a star to signal the birth of the Jewish king in the first place? I mean, where's that written? Where do we find any indication of that the Messiah would have a star signaling his birth and that they would be called his star? Some point to the, back to the messianic prophecy in the words of Balaam. Balaam, who was a false prophet, he was brought by Balak the king to curse the Israelites. Remember in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And it was impossible for Balaam because of God's sovereignty and God's prevention. It was impossible for Balaam to curse the Israelites. All that could escape his lips when he looked down upon the people of Israel, all that could come out of his lips were blessing. He was thwarted in his own desire for money from Balak the king. And he had to give nothing but blessing instead of cursing. And it says in Numbers 24, 17, he said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Balaam, by the way, was from the region of Mesopotamia. He was a renowned prophet known throughout the ancient world. And some think that he did come from this ancient caste of rulers called the Magi. So it is possible that the Magi had studied the Jewish law, the Torah, and saw in the book of Numbers this reference. Possible they studied that text and they learned from Daniel and his friends, the other Jews during the Babylonian captivity. We really don't know for sure because honestly, reading Numbers 24, 17, your immediate conclusion isn't to say, I need to be looking for a star that's gonna show up when he's born. Maybe they mixed it with their astrology. We, we don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us how the Magi knew what they knew. He's, he's actually, Matthew is, is incredibly clear, isn't he? Throughout his gospel, inciting the fulfillment of prophetic texts. So we would expect that this, if this were a fulfillment of Numbers 24, 17, wouldn't Matthew have said that? He doesn't say that. He says nothing about the stars, a sign to point the way to the Messiah, but maybe that's Matthew's point. That the Magi had far less to go on than any other Jew living in Jerusalem, and yet they came. Next question we have is about the nature of this star, because obviously it wasn't like any other star, as you saw read. Some think that the Magi discovered what was called a nova, like a new star, a brand new star, it just appeared, and it's with us to this day. Some say that. Some say that it was no, it wasn't a nova, it wasn't a new star, it was a supernova, it was a dying star, and dying stars, evidently before they die, they have a sudden burst of light right before they go out of existence. Maybe it was that, they say. Others say, no, the Magi saw a comet flying through the air and it showed up and they thought it was a star or maybe it was actually a falling star, maybe a meteor shower coming into Earth's atmosphere with blazing light. Others believe they follow the work of Johannes Kepler they believe that the star was not a star really, but actually an aligning of planets that looks from our perspective, sitting on earth, it looks like a bright star. He discovered, uh, looking back in history, a once 
in every 800 years alignment of the two planets, Jupiter and Saturn. And they came together, showing up together in the constellation of Pisces. And this created a brilliant star-like light that attracted everybody's attention. According to his research, it's fascinating that he has the ingenuity and brilliance to see this, but he said one of these rare planetary alignments happened just two years before Christ's birth. The phenomenon is repeated three times in that same year, in May, October, and December, and it created an extraordinary, brilliant sight. Hard to square really any of those views with the text, because we see in verse nine that this mysterious luminary, this body of light, it's moving as if by its own will. And it actually is leading the Magi. And it comes to rest over the place where the child was. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a star do that. Never seen a star descend to identify not just a town, but a particular house. Doesn't matter whether it's a nova or a supernova or a comet or a meteor coming down, he's gonna smash the house. You're not gonna see this. Even planets aligning and joining constellations and all the rest. Listen, there is no natural explanation sufficient to explain verse nine. We need to see this as supernatural. It's general revelation because it's not revelation by words. It's revelation by sight and it's general for them to see and to interpret but it's hard not to see that this is supernatural. So suffice it to say that we don't know exactly what the Magi saw. We need to be comfortable with that. Matthew doesn't tell us. He doesn't intend to. He doesn't intend to explain it to us. Clearly they saw something. We don't know anything more than what Matthew has written for us here. And whatever the Magi saw, back home in the land of Chaldea, it looked to them like a star, but it behaved to them something like the Shekinah glory of God that guided the people of Israel from Egypt into the promised land, this bright, shining glory that guided the people. Maybe it was that. Somehow though, by God's mysterious grace, these magi knew, and they knew for certain that this star is something special. That this star is not only something special, but it is his star. And so certain were they that they immediately packed their bags got onto their camels, or whatever they're riding, and they took about a year off from their lives, away from their regular duties, away from their families. Can you imagine doing that? Taking a year off from everything, unplugging, going off the grid, traveling 900 miles there, 900 miles back. Four months to get there, another four months to get back. They were so certain that they were going to see what they knew was the sign of the birth of the king of the Jews. Absolutely amazing. We can imagine these men, all their servants, all this retinue of people attending to them as they ascend the hills and they enter into the city of Jerusalem. And as their caravan is stretching along the road and there are the people, the citizens of Jerusalem coming out to see them as they go by. And they hear them saying in this thick Persian accent, Asking everybody that they meet, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Like, what are you doing still in your jammies and bathrobes? Like, where is he? Get up. We saw his star when it rose. So certainly you must have. We've come to worship him along with you. Dramatic use of the present tense here. Matthew's bringing us into the scene. So we're standing there on the road hearing them. 
And they're asking this over and over, where is he? Where is he who's been born a king of the Jews? They don't even dare get down off their animals at this point. They, they don't want to unpack their bags because they're not through yet. They're looking for an answer because their journey is not going to be complete until they find this king of the Jews. They saw his star. They know for certain it's his and they've come to worship him. They won't be thwarted in their purpose. News of their arrival and their question finally reaches the palace. So we see in verse three that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And that's a mild way of putting it. The word troubled here is the verb tarasso. He's really, really shaken up. That's the verb is to shake, to agitate. He is deeply, deeply disturbed. And that's dangerous for everybody when Herod gets disturbed. Why should he be troubled? Listen, deep down inside, in his heart of hearts, in his conscience, Herod knows he's not really the king of the Jews. He knows that he's nothing more than an Idumean pretender. He knows he's got no claim on the throne of Jerusalem. He's got no right to this title. So no matter what Rome could confer upon him and no matter what army they gave him and what wealth they gave him and what title and prominence and prestige, these people are not his people, really. This city's not his city. This throne belonged to another, to this Messiah. He's sitting in it, in his throne, without any authorization, without permission. Why is all Jerusalem troubled with Herod? Well, <laughs> because they had enough history with this guy. Remember, this is about 4 BC. This scene right here, and Herod's been ruling since 37 BC. They're no stranger to his ways. They know exactly what happens when Herod's agitated, when there's political trouble brewing. Herod starts killing people. And no one wanted to be the target of his evil suspicions. No one wanted to become the victim of his fears and his anxieties. And believe me, there's nothing more scary than a fearful tyrant. Aren't we seeing that in Russia right now? The guy's got nuclear weapons. So what do the citizens of Jerusalem do? What does Herod do? Sadly, we see in them, a, we'll call this point two. In the citizens of Jerusalem, in King Herod, in the rulers and the leaders, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, what do we see? Point two, we see the rejection of Christmas worship. Point number two, the rejection of Christmas worship. Herod's first action that we see here is, as Matthew writes for us, he sa it says that he meets with the Jewish religious leaders. In verse four, he says he is, he's assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And assembling them, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Some believe, with good reason, that Herod called an ad hoc meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the ruling body of the Jews that consisted of the elders, the chief priests, which were predominantly of the Sadducee party, and then the scribes of the people. Many of those belong to the Pharisee party. That's what of the people is a reference to. The Pharisees were the party of the people, the scribes numbered with them. We shouldn't think that Herod in assembling the chief priests and the scribes, that Herod the Great, this ruler who's been around a long time, that he is wholly ignorant of the scripture. As if he didn't know for himself from the Bible where the Messiah was to be born. He wasn't necessarily looking for information he didn't have already. He knew the implications of the Magi's question about the Messiah, about the King of the Jews. He knows this is a messianic issue. He's actually quelled rebellions of proposed or supposed 
Messiahs throughout his reign, this is nothing new to him. He's not stupid. He knows the Bible. He knows where these Jews get their prophecies from. So why does he meet with the religious leaders, ask them this question? Why does he do this before meeting with these venerable visitors from the East? Several reasons for this, but I'm just going to mention what I think is most important here. He's doing what every intelligent ruler should do. He's calling in the biblical experts. He wants to make sure he's got his facts straight. He wants certainty before making a move. And this, you could tell right here that there is already an evil, devious plan that is coming together in his wicked little mind. It says here, assembling all the chief priests, scribes of the people, he inquired of them, verse four, where the Christ is to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Where's that come from? It comes from Micah 5.2. And in Micah 5.2, we read, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah is distinguishing this as the Judean Bethlehem, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I wish we had more time to examine that reference, pull it out, look at it, see its surrounding context. Because that reference in Micah 5.2 shows a gap between the first and second advents of Christ. It pictures Christ reigning and ruling on earth in a literal geographical millennial kingdom. We'll just have to be content with what serves our purposes this morning and what we have time to see is how the chief priests and the scribes, how they summarized Micah 5.2, what they included in their summary to Herod and what they left out. The chief priests were political appointees. The chief priests are the ones who ran the temple. They ran the temple and all the temple environment and all the temple complex. And by the way, remember when Jesus came into the temple and he drove away all those who were buying and selling in the temple and all the money changers? He did that twice in his ministry, once at the beginning and once at the end. You know what that represents? Money, money. These chief priests sat over this entire business enterprise that was the temple complex. They'd corrupted it, defiled it, turned it into a money-making scheme for themselves. And so they were political appointees. Ever since the time of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, the Seleucids made them political appointees and appointed them over the temple. And so these political appointees, the chief priests, they are associated with the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are theological liberals. They actually don't believe the Bible. They held to the law of Moses, but that was it. First five books of the Bible, that gave them some type of authority for their priesthood. But they rejected the rest. They rejected the prophets. They refused to believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural, didn't believe in angels and demons. So the chief priests here, making money over the temple, in positions of power and authority, they know this reference, Micah 5.2. They're well-versed in the texts and traditions of the people. They just refuse to believe any of it. Especially that last part tells us the Messiah is more than a mere man. That his coming forth is from old, from of ancient days. Better translation makes that meaning inescapably plain. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. That's what it says. It is clear in Micah 5.2 that this Messiah figure is divine. So the chief priests, 
theological liberals, they vote to leave that part out in answering Herod. No need to muddy the waters with theological controversy and get him all confused. Jerusalem scribes, on the other hand, most of them Pharisees, these are the Bible-believing theological conservatives. They may not have protested this omission from Micah 5.2 because it wasn't germane to answering Herod's question and it wasn't expedient to the common cause that they shared with the chief priests. You see, in the Sanhedrin, in order to sit on a ruling body of the Jews, some of them conservative and some of them liberal, it's just like today, Republicans and Democrats, they have to sit and in Congress together, they got to compromise. So you got to play along to get along. What the chief priests and the scribes shared together in common cause, setting aside their theological differences, they all despised Herod. They saw him as an Idumean. They saw him as representing Roman power, Roman oppression, a Roman hand in their pocket, digging in and pulling out money and sending it to Rome. They didn't like him at all. So when they quoted Micah 5, 2 to Herod, they were sure to include the final clause, for from you shall come a ruler, Herod, a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now that served both Sadducee and Pharisee interest. That served both the chief priests and the scribes interests. Chief priests and the scribes of the people, they'd lived under more than 30 years of Herod's despotic rule. And in their minds, it wasn't a bad thing to remind him every now and again. He's not Jewish. He's an Indian, a usurper. Jews have their own identity. They can choose their own rulers. And Herod's political position is never going to be secure. Sadly, that's as far as it went for them. It only rose in their hearts and their minds to political importance. Just like Herod, these guys are political animals at heart. They're politicians. Their theology really didn't stir their passions at all. What they knew from the Bible didn't provoke any zeal for them, didn't inform any worship. They were theologically, biblically fast asleep, even though they knew with head knowledge the truth. You know how many people there are like that today? We call it cold, dead orthodoxy. It's the right word. Their theology was sufficient to get them their jobs, qualified them to gain position, to gain influence, and to keep it. Their theology and Bible knowledge helped them to do the job, but nothing more. There's no indication that these religious leaders made any further inquiry. No evidence that they tried to join the Magi in searching for the Messiah. Neither the people, neither them nor the people of Jerusalem not the religious leaders of the people or the people themselves cared anything to go and see. It was a social concern for them, a political concern, maybe even a security concern, considering Herod's murderous impulses were completely unpredictable. But otherwise, the people remained indifferent, uninterested. The good people of Jerusalem followed the example of their religious leaders. They all went home that evening kissed their wives, ate their supper, played with their kids, went to bed unaffected and unchanged. How many people sit in our churches today doing exactly the same thing? For Herod's part, he got the confirmation that he was looking for, that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. He's got the place, now he needs to know the time. And so verse seven, he summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He knows the place, now he needs to know the time. And the reason for this becomes horrifyingly clear in verse 16. He wants to murder the baby. 
But notice how he keeps the Jewish leadership and the visiting Magi. Notice how he keeps them separated. He divides and conquers. He makes sure that he's the one in charge. He's asking all the questions. He's getting the information and therefore he's controlling all the information. He silos information. Whenever you see somebody siloing information in leadership, they're up to no good. Herod sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child. Remember, he's a politician. He smiles at them, even while he's holding a knife behind his back. Go search diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word. Oh, so that I too may come and worship him. God has sent me the Messiah. False piety. He's making a pretense of interest in worshiping this newborn king. He plays the hypocrite to them. He pretends to share their desire to worship the one who's been born king of the Jews. So he wins their trust. They're out of towners. He wins their trust. He persuades them through his deceit. He convinces them through his eloquence, his apparent sincerity, but it's all just a show. Just as he's done all his life, he uses them. He's good at using people. He turns the Magi into his private detectives and he deploys them to do his bidding. And they do so unwittingly. They don't know. His intention is the very opposite of theirs. They came to bow down in homage to worship the king. Herod, he'd bow down too, but in rebellion to murder the king. So the Magi leave from Herod's presence in good faith. They're eager to finish what they came to do. Herod stays back in Jerusalem to gather his death squad and to prepare his assassins to locate and then terminate the child once he receives back word from the, the Magi. But high above Herod's cunning, watching out for these worshipful Magi, is the sovereign God. And God will guide these men to their destination. He will, by his good and wise providence, watch over them and protect them and also give them their heart's desire to go and worship the king. And that's what we get to see now in a third point. As we come to the climax here of the Matthew's narrative in verse 9, and following the third point, a culmination of Christmas worship. The culmination of Christmas worship. We read in verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way. There's no hesitation on their part. It's just a five mile, two hour journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And they are eager to finish what they started. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, it's back in their own land, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Again, no, no natural star acts like that. That is obviously a supernatural phenomenon, a special grace of God to lead these pagans, former pagans, to worship the Son of God. It's clear from verse 9 that they hadn't seen this star since they left their homeland. They saw it back then as it rose, and now verse 10, verse 9 and 10, they see it again. And it says in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew has stacked up the superlatives here. By the way, these are not dispassionate sages from the Orient, all put together in their robes. They're not floating across the land like some unaffected dignitaries. These men are worshipers. They're pious. They are passionate. True believers. How can we tell? We can tell by how they react with exceeding joy, but also what they do. Because what they do here is offer true worship. And notice in offering true worship by the gifts that they give, they show an educated worship, an informed worship. 
There are many people coming together on Sunday after Sunday, month after month, year after year, and they say they're coming to worship God. What does the worship look like? Emotional displays, heartwarming music, fun fellowship, fun things going on. They feel lifted from their weary week. And they say, I've worshiped. Ask them anything about theology and have a clue. They don't know anything from the Bible because they don't read their Bibles. Many people attending churches, many people who call themselves evangelicals have no idea what the Bible says on almost any point. Even when they say God is love, they so misunderstand love that they turn it into lust and romantic feeling. They have no idea what love is, what grace is, what the church is for. Theirs is not true worship. You know why? Because it's not educated. It's not informed. It's not in accordance with the truth. God doesn't leave it up to us to innovate and do whatever we want in worship. He actually took pains to make sure we understood the truth by revealing it in words we could understand. Many people have died to bring this book to us in our language so that we can understand what God requires for worship. These magi, based on, I don't know how much they knew, but it seems less than we know, it was enough to drive them from their land into Jerusalem and go and find this child. And when they came, they offered him an informed true worship. By the time they arrived in Bethlehem, all the events that are recorded in Luke 2, 1 to 38, what we read earlier in scripture reading, all that has happened well before the Magi arrived, visited the shepherds, the appearance of the angels, visiting the temple, presenting Jesus at the temple, meeting Simeon, meeting Anna, all that had occurred before the Magi arrived. Over about a 40-day period of time, all that had happened. And so by the time the wise men arrived in Bethlehem, Joseph had his family now situated in a house, no longer in a stable. Child sleeps in a bed, no longer in a manger. He doesn't have, you know, animals all around him like we picture in the manger scenes. So I'm sorry to ruin your manger scenes. You may have to go and adjust the front lawn, but the Magi were back in Babylon the night that Jesus was born. So if you've got a baby Jesus in your manger, you can have Mary and Joseph, you can have shepherds and angels, but listen, please, no wise men, okay? So just go, just go pull them off the lawn, tuck them away, bring them out 40 days later, that'd be fine. But take away the animals and all the shepherds and all that stuff, okay? Be consistent with the scripture. Offer informed worship with your manger scenes. While they're in Babylon, on the night of Jesus' birth, that's when they saw, first saw the star rise. His star appeared the night that Jesus was born. So, okay, if you want to put a star in your manger scene, totally cool. That'll be fine. But on this particular night, when they arrive, again, no animals, no shepherds, but there's a knock at the door. And Joseph opens the door, and there's the sight of these magi. This massive caravan and all these people. And going into the house, so Matthew doesn't elaborate on that, but we can imagine, right? Going into the house, they see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fall down and worship him. They open their treasures, treasure boxes, offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Matthew notes the presence of Jesus' mother, Mary, but not his father, Joseph. Why is that? He's mentioned Joseph in the previous section. Was Joseph gone? First of all, probably Matthew here is reminding us that Mary is the child's mother, but Joseph is not the child's father. The conception of Jesus is a miraculous conception. It's not natural. It's supernatural. Matthew 1.18, 
Mary was with child, not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. Probably one reason he doesn't picture Joseph there. But second thing, Matthew wants us to remember that Mary is the child's mother. She's a real mother. She is a mother in the normal human way. She gave birth to this child. And that birth was not a miraculous birth. It was a miraculous conception, a normal birth, natural birth. This person, Jesus, he has a divine nature. And that divine nature has been joined together in Mary's womb to a human nature, to a human body. That means this Jesus is a one of a kind, unique person. Never happened before. It's never gonna happen again. There's only one like him. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is truly divine. Growing to term in Mary's womb, born in the normal natural way, he is truly human. So this supernatural conception, but a very natural, very normal birth brings together the divine person and the human, per- or the divine nature and the human nature in one person, Jesus Christ. The Magi fall to the ground, prostrate before the child. They don't probably know the theology we know. They don't understand it as clearly as we do, but they know enough to fall prostrate before the child. And we understand this, that the child is too young to even know that they're there. Does the child perceive this homage that they're rendering? Does the baby understand the significance? Does he appreciate this gesture of the wise men? Not at all. He's a baby. He's an infant. So why do they do it then? If not for his sake, why do they do it? Why do they fall down and worship this child who is at this time unable to perceive, unable to respond? They fall down and they worship this child because it's right, because they must. They fall down and worship because of who he is, because of what he is in the essence of his being. Who this child is demands immediate wholehearted worship. They render it freely, joyfully. That's why I don't mind one bit when anyone refers to these magi. That's the actual technical term. The meaning of the term magi goes way back centuries, but I don't mind one bit when people refer to them as the wise men. They are very wise. This is accurate. They demonstrate by their actions here, great wisdom in a most fitting form of worship. Where are the residents of Jerusalem? Not there. Religious leaders of the Jews? None of them could be bothered to make the five mile, two hour journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Even Herod, who has murderous intent, even he went to bed that night. Murder could wait until later. Always gotta do your most devious things on a good night's sleep. Not these men. These men take immediate, appropriate, pious action. They bow themselves low before the holy child. They fall prostrate before him and they come to worship the king of kings and bow down before the Lord of lords. There's no reluctance on their part in their worship and they have worshiped him here with all their heart and soul and strength and most importantly, with their mind, with their mind. We see their thoughtfulness as they open up their treasure boxes, prepared by the way, several months earlier in anticipation of this moment and they present to the child a most fitting highly appropriate gifts that are fit only for this particular person, Jesus Christ. Again, the child doesn't perceive the nature of these gifts. He doesn't perceive their value, their usefulness and what they signify, not at all, but we certainly do. 
These gifts are so theologically informed, so pinpoint accurate in portraying the truth about this child and giving us his actual identity, his earthly mission. It's as clear and bright on the pages of scripture as the star that guided them. These gifts are of the special providence of God himself for us to see. The earliest source that I know of that identified the significance of each gift was the church father Origen. And there's a chorus of witnesses throughout church history that shares Origen's opinion. This is what he wrote. He said, the Magi came accordingly to Judea, being ignorant of the place of his birth, bringing gifts which they offered to him as one whose nature partook, if I may so speak, both of God and of a mortal man. Gold, namely, as to a king, myrrh as to one who is mortal, and incense as to a god. End quote. So gold for the chosen king. Incense for God who is immortal and eternal. And then myrrh for the mortal man who came to die for the sins of his people. The gift of gold is fit for a king. When the queen of Sheba came from Africa to pay tribute to Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 10, she gave him 120 talents of gold. You know how much that is? That's four and a half tons of gold. I don't know what current gold prices are, but that's a lot of money. Staggering. A few verses later, we put that in context. In 1 Kings 10, 14, we read that the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year is 666 talents of gold. That's about 25 tons of gold that came to Solomon each and every year. And now, as Jesus would say later in his ministry, someone greater than Solomon is here. The Magi get it. This is why they bow down, fall prostrate on the ground, pay homage to him. They come to adore and worship a king. Gold is fitting for a king and they give a gift befitting the stature of this one whom they worship. Jesus is a great king. We should never forget that. As a infant child, lowly and in a manger, we should never forget that. Because now as the son of man, risen, ascended into heaven, he's seated at God's right hand. And according to Micah 5.2 and Matthew 2.6, he is a ruler. The word is hegeomai, from which we get the word hegemony or hegemonic. Hegemony refers to a dominant political ruler. This dominant political ruler will shepherd God's people Israel in a future millennial kingdom on earth. And he is head of the church right now. He is to be feared he is to be obeyed as a great king. He is to be worshiped without hesitation, without any question. Earlier, I pointed out the inaccuracy of that opening line of the songs, We Three Kings. Probably not three of them, and they were certainly not kings. But in this case, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. The rest of the song's lyrics, they are as accurate as they are eloquent. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never over us all to reign. It's good, isn't it? It's thoughtful. The next gift is frankincense. Frankincense is made from a milky white resin of a boswellia tree, which is native to Africa, India, Arabia. Frankincense is offered with sacrifice. When we read biblically and see Incense that's offered in sacrifice. Incense always symbolizes the prayers of God's people. We've talked about this recently in the Gospel of Luke and our exposition there that the priest took burning coals from the altar of burnt offering. And the altar of burnt offering is where they offered the lamb for sacrifice that covered over the sins. And they took burning coals from that altar, the burnt offering, and they placed them on the altar of incense. So first the burnt offering, then the prayers, the incense. 
Place them on the altar of incense, sprinkled the incense on the burning coals, and that created a fragrant smoke that ascended up to God. That fragrant smoke that ascended to him symbolized the prayers of praise and thanksgiving from the people of God. And that's why any incense that was offered with a sacrifice, never offered with a sin offering, never offered with a burnt offering, but it was offered with a grain offering, the thanksgiving offering. Incense is offered to God and to God alone. Prayers are offered to God and God alone. There are no prayers to Mary, no prayers to saints, no prayers to human beings. That's what all of them are. Prayers are offered to God and God alone because he is worthy of worship and praise. Frankincense is a gift to deity. It's an acknowledgement of deity. And so the Magi's gift of frankincense symbolizes probably more than they knew at the time, but it's that this child is none other than God incarnate. And so we sing in the third stanza of that great song, frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising, voices raising, worshiping God on high. Song gets it right. The final gift of myrrh is a picture of mortality. Myrrh reminds us that Jesus came to take our sin upon himself and die in our place in order that he might share with us his immortality. Myrrh comes from small thorny trees, the Camaphora myrrha, also known as the balsamodendron tree. Fragrant resin is extracted from the wood and used for perfume, and the perfume had all kinds of uses, but most notably, it was often used to treat a dead body with dignity, with respect, by covering over the smell of decay. That's what Nicodemus did. John 19.39 says he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. What was he doing there? He's preparing Jesus' body for burial. Once again, the song says in the fourth stanza, myrrh is mine. It's bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone cold tomb. Jesus Christ, his person and his work is pictured in the gifts of these wise men. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they all come together in the final stanza of that carol. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia sounds through earth and skies. So centuries old anticipation, promised salvation of God, the gift of Jesus Christ, all of it culminates in this Christmas worship offered by the Magi. They were wise beyond what Probably even they knew, but wise beyond measure in the gifts that they offered to the incarnate Son of God, the one who came to take away the sins of the world. There's a postscript in verse 12, which we need to cover. And it brings us back to Matthew's concern that I mentioned at the beginning of this narrative. It puts a choice before us, a choice of whether we will join the Magi in zealous, thoughtful, sacrificial worship of Jesus Christ on the one hand, or... On the other hand, to join Herod and the religious people of Jerusalem who rejected him. Here's what it says in verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Who's doing the warning? God is doing the warning. Whether it's through an angel, whether it's through the elements of the dream, we're not told. But being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. God watched over the Magi. He protected them from being used by Herod to murder the Christ child. We also know if we continue reading that God took care of Joseph, Mary, the baby Jesus. Young family escaped to Egypt, lived there till Herod died, and so then they returned into Judea and then on up to Nazareth and Galilee. What about the religious leaders, the Jews? What about the good citizens of Jerusalem? 
Well, they continued living in their indifference to Jesus Christ. They continued on with their lives, oblivious to the gift of salvation that God had sent. The light was shining bright and clear. Their eyes were blind, dark. Everything was dark for them. He came to his own, John 1.11, but his own people did not receive him. Tragically, 30 years later, the good citizens of Jerusalem, led by their religious leaders, they chose to take up Herod's cause, crying, crucify him, crucify him. As I said, there's no neutrality with Jesus. You're either for him or against him. And we see the good citizens of Jerusalem, people who would have recoiled in horror with Herod's intent to murder the baby Jesus. Basically, they say, hey, just give us 30 years. We'll kill him for you. Why? Did Jesus in his lifetime do anything to warrant crucifixion? Did he sin? Did he do evil? Did he do any injustice? No, no, and no. He came to preach the kingdom of God. He came to do miracles of mercy, to cast demons out of people and heal diseases and raise the dead and forgive our sins. God is absolutely holy and will not tolerate even one sin of thought, word, and deed. He will not tolerate, he will not broker any sin of omission and commission. We cannot do what he commands us not to do. We must do everything that he commands us to do. How many of us have kept any of the law? All 10 commandments you look down and in thought, word, or deed, we have broken that law. We're sinners before God. He's perfectly righteous, which means when it comes to our standing before him, we're in trouble. Just like there's only two ways to take with Jesus. You either are for him or you are against him. And if you're for him, you're in all the way. You're one of these magi. You're bowing before him. You're giving him your life. Or you stand with Herod and all the indifferent people of Jerusalem who will eventually hate him and kill him. You have to take one of two approaches with Jesus. And there's only one of two outcomes for the approach that you take. It's eternal heaven or eternal hell. The choice is before us. Jesus, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of his people. And if you'll repent of your sins, turn away from all that you are, all that you've been, and say, it's no more about me. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Will you do that? Repent of your sins and turn and put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you'll do that, eternity is before you. Eternal life. It's not just eternal in quantity because everybody lives one place or another, either heaven or hell. It's not just eternal in quantity, it's eternal in quality. It's an eternal kind of life. It's the life that comes from God and God alone. It's the life that animated these magi. As we see in the worship of the magi, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born obviously not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. This Jesus is the risen King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And when he comes again, it's going to be the glory of his royal justice will be on full and complete and perfect display. So what about you, my friend? Will you receive him today? Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ and join the Magi in offering to him your zealous, thoughtful, sacrificial worship? Will you be devoted to him? Give your life to him? Because that's what he requires. And when he requires it, he requires a good thing of you. He gives you true freedom, which is to have life in his name. That's what Christmas is all about, true worship. It's the worship of the King who is the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful 
for your perfect plan of redemption that's revealed a wisdom beyond this world to grant a righteousness that is beyond this world, the righteousness of God for all who believe in Jesus Christ. You tell us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, thank you for this opportunity once a year that we get to revisit this Christmas story. And for those of us who believe, we don't revisit the Christmas story just once a year. It's the story that we live in all the time. We share the joyful devotion of the Magi. And there's every single one of us whom you have caused to be born again. We would cross land and sea and cross through every peril if it meant that we could bow before him and offer him our gifts and our lives. What you ask us to do, what you call us to do is not to give up our time to go across land and sea and make a long journey. The word is very near us. It's in our hearts. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. What you call us to do is to give up our life now. And so Father, we thank you for opening our eyes to the truth and giving us a chance this Christmas day. We have praise and worship to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the baby born in Bethlehem, who is the risen Lord and Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.